So did anybody go home and do your homework that you were given? Who remembers what the homework was? I kind of slipped it in there. Look at the history of the hymn, It Is Well. If you didn't do that, I would highly suggest you go look that up. Because it really fit into the truth that we looked at last week in where Paul says, and we know. But in continuing in that same thought, we're continuing our study through Romans 8. And this week we're going to be in verses 28 and 29. So if you will, open up your Bibles to Romans 8, verses 28 and 29, and I will read 29 and 30. I will read these verses for us. So the word of the Lord reads. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we approach your word this morning, may you give us understanding and wisdom to know the truths of you. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so as we continue this walk through uh, Romans 8, we, uh, we're in a passage that has uh, frequently been referred to as the, um, the, the uh, golden chain of salvation or the chain of eternal security. Um, but in this passage, there, there are two, two things I want, want to point out that we're going to look at today. First, we're going to look at the purpose in salvation, then the process in salvation. And, and through those, uh, I don't have a fancy acronym like I did last week, but uh, we're going to have purpose and process. Um, and the process is actually referred to as the golden chain of salvation. And as comforting as our passage from last week, it was, this one is even more so. You know, in knowing, to, to be able to say that we know that God is working all things to good for those that love him is such a comfort. But this week, this, this even expands more on God's love for us and grace that he has shown us. Because in this passage, we will see what is commonly known as eternal security or perseverance of the saints. <clears throat> And as comforting as these verses are, there are a few key words in here that have really caused division within churches over centuries and centuries. And I, I kind of caution us as we go into this today that because um, where I feel a lot of this, this comes into, uh, this division arises is when we approach scripture with the thought of what does the scripture mean to me? When in all honesty, it really doesn't matter what it means to me at all. The way we should approach scripture is what did the author intend it to mean and what has God given it to us to interpret it the way God has intended it. So to, to remove our flesh from it, to remove our feelings from it, to remove our presuppositions, pre-ideas and thoughts that we have and approach it and to find to discover what it means in its correct context and to truly flesh out what God is communicating to us. Now, as we do this, we must also keep in mind there are many mysteries of how God works out salvation. To say that we could have it all figured out is, is 
really arrogant on our parts. We're never, there are many things about what God does we're never going to fully figure out. We're never going to fully understand, but that's where faith come in, comes in, is we have to trust that God has said this is what he's doing, however it is that he does it, and trust that he is the one that is doing it. And, we, and, and as we approach these, we must resist the temptation to humanize God. We must try to remove the, the human logic that God is working as I would work. And remember who this God is. He's all-knowing. He's never not known anything. He never learns anything because he knows everything. He's all-wise. He makes the best decisions possible. He's all-loving. He's all-present. He's everywhere. Through time, space, nothing confines him. And to keep that in mind, he's nothing like us in that regard. So this is the God who is who is working out the salvation. We must keep that in mind. But as we begin this week, um, the first thing I want to do is answer the question that should, have, that should have left us there in verse 28, when he's working all things out to his purposes. So what are his purposes in salvation and glorification of a sinner? So that's what we're going to look at first, and that is the progress of salvation. I'm sorry, it's the it's purpose of salvation. Then we'll move on to the progress. So the purpose of salvation, it's right there in the text. To be conformed to the image of his son. That's his first purpose here. So from the beginning of time, God has chosen to save believers from their sins in order that they might be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So God is redeeming for himself this this eternal, holy, Christ-like citizens to dwell in his kingdom as his children. Every believer who is saved will be glorified. Uh, This means we will be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, the full truth of what this means is really beyond our full comprehension, but the New Testament does give us some glimpses as we can begin to see what it's like to be conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, The first thing we'll see is that we will be like Christ bodily. In the Philippians 3.21, and and on that day, the the, the Lord, he, he will do this. On that day, the Lord will do this. He will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body for the power that enables him even to the subject of all things to himself. So on that day, we will be glorified bodily as Christ is glorified bodily. Glorification will be God's gracious adornment of his children with the very glory of his son. So as we see his risen son, we will be. We will have these glorified resurrected bodies just as Christ. The second thing is we will be uh, like Christ spiritually and not becoming deities or, or gods in ourselves. That is a whole nother line of cults out there. But our glorified bodies will be infused with the very holiness of Christ. And we will outwardly and inwardly be perfect just as our Lord is perfect. And in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 kind of begins to shape the picture of what this may look like. And it reads, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering because of suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone for it was fitting that he 
for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So this begins to give us a picture of what it's like spiritually to be like Christ. It, it, vaguely, yes, we're never fully going to understand. But in that, to be conformed to him bodily, we will be like the resurrected Christ, but also spiritually and perfect, we will be like Christ in the glorification. Now the second purpose here is to make Christ preeminent. And when we say preeminent, it is uh, surpassing all others. This is a simple definition of preeminent. And it says in the verse there that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And this is really God's supreme purpose in the glorification of sinners, in the salvation of sinners, is to, is to make his son preeminent in the plan of redemption. So it is God's intent for Christ to be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, the firstborn, to, to understand it in its, its correct context, in the Jewish culture, firstborn was a privileged status. It was status that came with it. It was typically a male child, but it could also be female if there was not a male, male child. And the term was often used figuratively to represent preeminence in surpassing all, surpassing all others, meaning first place in this. Then the word brethren, that's really, it's just a synonym for believers there. So God's primary purpose in his plan of redemption was to make his beloved son the firstborn among many brethren in the sense of Christ being uniquely preeminent among all the children of God, the firstborn, the, the, the one that surpasses all others. Those who come to trust him become God's adopted children, and Jesus, the true son of God, gracious, graciously calls them brothers and sisters within God's divine family. God's purpose is to make us like Christ in order to create a great, redeemed, glorified humanity over which Christ will reign and be preeminent. Now, we thank the Lord for eternal life that he's given us through salvation. He's given us peace and joy, all these great benefits that come along with salvation. But our greatest thanks should be the unspeakable privilege we have of being given glorified, being glorified with Christ eternally. We will enjoy him forever, not just the peace and joy that it brings us now and comfort that it can bring us now in this life, but the eternal glorification. So these are, are the, the, the primary purposes we see in the glorification or the salvation of sinners. It is to take the sinner and conform him to the image of Christ, but first and foremost, to make Christ the son preeminent over all of redeemed. But as we move into the progress, there are five great doctrines that we see in here, really five words that we need to define and flesh out. And those five doctrines, those five words are foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, justification, and glorification. Now, these five doctrines are so closely connected that they've been referred to as the um, as golden chains of five links or the unbreakable chain of salvation. Each of them describes something that God does, and that is extremely important as we approach this. These are specifically talking about something God does. 
The first two we see, foreknowledge and predestination, are concerned with God's eternal counsel and his past determinations. The last two, justification and glorification, uh, those, co- those concern what God has done, is doing, and will do. And the middle one, which if you see in your text, is, is called, we add effectual to that, but we'll get to that. The calling connects the pair of what God has predetermined, what will happen, the call connects them all together. So our first word that we're going to look at is foreknowledge. And we begin with this most important, but also, it is one of the most important ones, but it's also the most misunderstood of these doctrines. It's a compound word. It begins with four, which means beforehand and knowledge, to know something. Now, it has been taken to mean that since God knows all things, okay, we could agree God knows all things, uh, God knows beforehand who will believe and who will not believe, as a result of which he has predestined to salvation those whom he foresees will believe. So in other words, what he foreknows, what he foreknows is their faith, their decision. But does this really fit with the text we're reading? Everything we've been studying is the, the work of the Holy Spirit within the believer. Then we've transferred over to what God is doing. And now to all of a sudden shift to what man's choice, that God's decision is off of what man chooses, doesn't fit within the text. <clears throat> and really, it, it just... It, it doesn't do this passage justice to say here the doctrine of foreknowledge would be dependent on the choice of man. This ver- verse does not say God foreknew what one person would do over another person. It is not also talking about, it, it's not talking about human action at all. This is talk about something that God has done. James Montgomery Boyce says on this, the object of divine foreknowledge is not the action of certain people themselves. It can only mean that God has fixed special attention upon them or loved them savingly. In Amos 3, um, the word know here in that passage, it says, you have I only known of all families. So God's speaking directly to the Jewish people. For you, I have known. Now that word know if you were to look it up at the NIV version, it translates the word no as chosen. And, and it's, it's, it's used in the same context in the Greek as well. Now think about this. In Matthew seven twenty three, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where God says, in that day, many will come before me and say, haven't I done this for you? I've done this for you. And God says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Let's, let's, let's ponder that for a minute. Could God, could God really not know them? He's all-knowing. He knows everything. So what is it about this word know? The word know in, in Scripture is often used to, as an um, example of an intimate relationship. In knowing someone. So it is an intimate knowledge of them. And another problem here lies in Romans already. Paul has clearly stated that humanity is incapable of choosing anything apart from the working of God in them. 
So to say that now at this point, the decision of God is based on the decision of man, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't line up with what's already been laid out in the text. So foreknowledge means that salvation has its origins in the mind and the eternal counsel of God and not man. And this should focus our attention back on the distinguishing love of God according to, according to which some persons are elected to be conformed to his son, Jesus Christ. It's he knew them beforehand, before the beginning. He knew them before eternity passed. He is not bound by time. But all these, all these terms fit together. So as we move to predestination, and if we move from foreknowledge to that next link in the chain, foreknowledge, or, or to predestination, foreknowledge looks at the beginning of God's purpose in his action of choosing, whereas predestination looks at the end of God's purpose in his act of choosing. So this is where, this is where he's taking you. This is predestination. Predestination literally means to mark out a point or determine beforehand. The Lord predetermined the destination of every person who will believe in him. And he's predetermined so many other things in scripture. If we go to Acts chapter 2, verse 23, um, as Paul is preaching on the day of Pentecost, he, he says to them, This Jesus you delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So God also predestined everything that every believer to salvation through the means of his atoning sacrifice. So this atoning sacrifice, men meant for evil, God intended for good. It was predestined, predetermined that this would happen. That the, glory, the, the, the salvation, the atoning sacrifice of men would be brought through this evil act. And later on in Acts, in chapter 4, um, there's a group of believers, they are praying uh, in gratitude for the deliverance of Peter and John from prison. And uh, in verses 27 and 28, it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So in other words, the evil and powerful men that nailed Jesus to the cross could not have laid a finger on Jesus Christ had God not predetermined it already. But contemporary evangelism gives this impression that salvation is predicated on a person's decision for Christ. But we are not Christians first because of what we decide. But because God has decided about us before the foundation of the world. We are able to choose him because he had first chosen us according to the kind intentions of his will. It's Ephesians 1.4. And God has marked out, predestined for every believer to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the predestination. The predestination is he's decided beforehand where every believer will end. Now as we move to the to the next the next word in this link, in this chain that we look at, this calling, um, we add effectual to it, and it's very important that we add this adjective here, effectual. Because there are two types of calling that we see in scripture. And it can be easy to get them confused. So 
one kind is the external or general call. And uh, this is an open invitation to all persons to repent of their sin, turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and be saved. Um, this is what Jesus was speaking of when he said in uh, Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. See, and the problem here is that in, in our natural selves, and our, our natural sinful state, we would never respond to this type of call. This type of call is the call that is every time the gospel is preached to someone, this is the call. It's a general call. Repent. John in the wilderness, repent. Anytime the gospel is preached in anywhere is a general call. But the other call is an internal and effectual call. It's not only an issue of an invitation. It is also provides the ability to respond. Have you ever wondered why it is some people respond at certain points and others? Have you ever, you ever wondered that? I mean, just, just a gospel presentation that just breaks one person down, the next person has no effect at all. Or if you look back on your own salvation experience, why was it for me reading the book of Leviticus? It wasn't even a gospel presentation to my face. What was it? It was the effectual call. This effectual call is one that um, it's God's drawing to himself people who without the call would remain spiritually dead and unable to respond. And the best example we see in scripture is the raising of Lazarus. It's such a, 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 a wonderful account. And to think of that, think if you and I were to go to a corpse and get up, rise, there would be no response. But if you, if you read the account, Jesus is thankful for the opportunity so he can demonstrate who he is so that people will believe. And when Lazarus is called forth, he comes out. Because when Jesus calls, there will be a response. When God calls, there will be a response. It cannot be denied. And this is the effective call. When God calls the heart of a believer, it is effective. God is the one who originally called all the creation, spoke it into existence. And now he is still calling life out of death, life out of nothing. His call is heard. Now us, do we preach the gospel? Absolutely. Absolutely. You continue preaching the gospel just as it is presented in God's word. You don't try to change it. You, you don't try to make it more palatable. You preach it as God has determined it to be. And he is the one. He is the one that will call. If no one responds, you keep preaching the gospel. So many accounts through history, if you read about revivals in history, the, 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 the men that experience these true authentic revivals, they, they can't even comprehend why are all these people now all of a sudden coming to salvation, coming to know the Lord. God is moving. He is where He is the one calling. We stand faithful on his word. We share his truth. If you're called to preach, you stand and preach his word. <clears throat> 
This is how God calls those he has foreknown and predestined to salvation. This effectual call. The call is effective. It's awakening life of the spiritually dead. And there is no ignoring this call. A response is required. It is required. We could say Lazarus could have stayed in that tomb. But really, could he? No. No. The next step in this chain is the justification. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on justification. We've, Pastor Andy labored this pretty well through chapter 7. Chapter 7 is all about justification and even beginning of chapter 8. So really just kind of a brief review because uh, all of these are tied together. Justification is the judicial act by which God declares sinful men and women to be in right standing before, before him, not on the basis of their own merit, but on the basis of Jesus Christ has done for them by dying in their place on the cross. So Jesus bore their punishment, taking the penalty of their sins upon himself. Those sins having been punished, God now imputes his perfect righteousness of Jesus to their account. So that is justification in a nutshell. But the, the, the kind of important thing here is to notice that um, there is a, a relationship between effectual calling and justification. Now, call, the calling is at the point in which thing, is the point in which the things that were determined beforehand now come to fruition. God has predetermined it. Calling is kind of in our time when He calls us, because God is outside of time; He's transcendent of time. But the call is. It, it, it puts us, it's everything becoming manifest in our lives. What God decreed in eternity past becomes actual in our time. Calling is when salvation happens in the believer. <clears throat> we, are creatures, we are creatures in time, so it is by God's specific calling of us to faith in time that we are saved. Once again, we start getting to one of these doctrines that are so hard to comprehend. Now, the Bible never says that we are saved because of our faith. That would make our faith something good in us that somehow contributes to the process. But it does say that we are saved by faith. We are saved by or through faith, meaning God must create in faith in us before we can be justified. So calling justification. Then we move to our final link in this chain, glorification. So, as with foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification is inseparable from the others. It is exclusively a work of God. Do we know everything about glorification? No. Do you think our finite minds could even comprehend it at this point? No, we could not. But Paul, in, in writing here, he is, emphasizes the believer's eternal security and future glorification. One whom God foreknows will not fail to be predestined, to be called, to be justified, and ultimately be glorified. And as believers, we know with an absolute certainty that that is waiting for us. And 2 Corinthians 4 17, it's an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. Ultimate glory has been a recurring theme throughout this whole book of Romans. The promise of final glorification was not an uncertain hope for Paul as he wrote this. 
he put the phrase, these he also glorified in the past tense. Paul is demonstrating his own conviction of how much he knows this to be true. He's put it in the past tense as if it's already happened. And this is God's own guarantee. The final destination of our salvation is the ultimate glorification. Several years ago, an old great Bible teacher by the name of Harry Ironsides, he told a story about an older Christian who was asked to give a testimony. So the old man got before the church to share his testimony. He talked about how God had sought him, he'd found him, how God had loved him, called him, saved him, delivered him, cleansed him, healed him. He was just a great witness of the grace and power and glory of God. And after, me, after the meeting, a um, rather legalistic brother pulls him to the side, as sometimes we do that, pulled him to the side to criticize his testimony just a little bit. Seemed to be a little off to this brother. And he said to him, I appreciate all you said about what God did for you, but you didn't mention anything about your part in it. Salvation is really part us and part God. You should have mentioned something about your part. Oh, yes, the older man said. I apologize for that. I really should have said something about my part. My part was running away. His part was running after me until he caught me. We have all run. But God has set his love on us. He's predestined those and he's going to call those to be like Christ. Called us to faith and repentance, justified us, and has even certainly glorified us. May he alone be praised. When he calls, a response is required. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Christ said, when people ask in the Acts, what do we do to be saved? What was the response? Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent, turn from your sinful ways, and believe in him. It's all about him. It's all about Christ. That's it. Sometimes that's too simple for us, but that's it. When God calls, you turn from yourself, turn to him, and knowing that only righteousness can be found in him, and to him alone be the glory. Here in a few minutes, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, um, and this is elements for believers. We partake of this knowing the grape juice as good Baptists are going to take. It represents the blood. We've sinned against a holy and righteous God, and blood was required to atone for those sins. And we take this in remembrance of the blood that Christ shed for the remission of our sins and his flesh that was broken. We partake of that in remembrance of what he has done. The gospel is all about him. It's all about him. And when God calls us, we must respond. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we've 
seen in your word today, these, these great doctrines of truth that, that, that Father, Lord, I, I know I myself um, have trouble truly comprehending them. But Lord, I pray that you would um, give us the ability to trust in you and you alone. That you, in your foreknowledge, that you have known those in a saving way. You've predestined us to your glory and that you are calling, you have called some of us, you will call others. Praise be to your name. And those whom you call are justified and ultimately glorified. And as your word says, it is done. Lord, may we find peace in that. Father, Lord, we thank you. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.